This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and I am very pleased to have on the podcast Margaret Light, who will be very forthcoming, is Hawk and Light's wife. But I will let her introduce herself here because we're going to try to take on, a, I think, a very difficult subject. So thank you very, very much for coming on. And if you would like to kind of tell everyone your background a little bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Really what that means is I have a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. In this line of work, in order to actually get licensed, there's a bunch of additional stuff you do in the couple years following that degree. So there's a couple different tests and a lot of supervised experience and all of which is to say any licensed provider is kind of governed by different state rules just to make sure that folks are getting good care. So I've completed all that. Currently, I work in a group practice in Cambridge, which is about an hour north of the metro area. I've done that for a number of years now. Prior to that, I was splitting my time between this group practice and then doing crisis assessments in a local emergency department. So that involved working with folks who are in what we call an acute mental health crisis. So thoughts of killing themselves or of otherwise harming themselves, possibly of killing others, and then also addressing some substance use and maybe some psychotic issues as well. And occasionally, we'd also kind of get into the realm of when civil and mental health cases connect. So that would be civil commitments, folks with a lot of severe and persistent mental illness. Did that for about three years. Before that, when I was still doing some training stuff, I did a lot of in-home therapy in Minneapolis with folks with severe and persistent mental illness. And then I also spent some time working for a company that contracted with child protection. So doing some in-home family therapy with families with CPS involvement. So I've done a few different things at this point. Yeah, very cool. Thank you for coming on. Kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit what we're going to talk about, but let me just quick thank our sponsor here and then I'll go into some details as to how we got to there. this subject. Really want to thank Napa for sponsoring. It's no secret we're facing a technician shortage. Napa Auto Care is addressing that. The free two-year apprentice program offers a variety of training to produce a technician with three ASE certifications. To learn more, members can visit member.napaautocare.com. So again, I, I really do want to thank you for coming on and I can't thank you enough and I'll probably just keep thanking you incessantly until the end. But I got to this subject really for a couple of reasons. One is another podcaster on the aftermarket radio network named Chris Cotton has a weekly podcast called um, The Weekly Blitz with Chris Cotton. And in episode 75, he discusses really how he got to a very, very dark place. And so that, you know, triggers questions, of course, in my mind. And then doing some research in a, for an upcoming episode, following up on an episode I did with uh, a couple of veterans and one of the guests, Scott Shotton's brother, is a um, veteran who has seen a lot of action and has some uh, TBI and PTSD and so just kind of researching more or less the PTSD portion of things, uh, not that I would 
ever be anything remotely close to an expert, but hopefully to be able to speak somewhat uh, intelligently on it. And I really fell upon this chart, if you will. And it's kind of listing suicide rates of different, I want, I'll say professions and by professions it's grouped together. So it's not just auto mechanics, but I was thinking veterans would be very, very, very high on the list and they're on the list and it's a high rate. It is a very high rate compared to a normal, I I mean, we're talking statistics. Okay. So right, average, right. And I don't want that to come off wrong uh, or bad, but I was stunned in what group the auto uh, technicians were in and it's higher than uh, veterans. It stunned me. It's up there with uh, doctors, dentists, veterinarians, counselors. I guess I was just kind of gobsmacked that uh, coal miners were kind of number one or miners. I shouldn't say coal miners, M-I-N-E-R-S, not minors like youth. There I sat, like I was just kind of stunned by that. I guess I just kind of wanted to start delving into a little bit with an expert, the hows and the whys, and maybe just when do you start getting concerned yourself? Like, ooh, I think there's obvious stuff we know about. You know, if you're coming up with a plan, but maybe there's earlier warning signs. And then as somebody that's dealing with, or not, you know, not dealing with, but involved with or working with someone having these thoughts and triggers, warning signs. And then if somebody just kind of is reaching out that they're reaching out for help and it might be subtle, you know, I don't want to get too crazy uh, with subtleties, but I guess I have a lot of questions. I just rattling them off. And I suppose before we get rolling too much, this is in no way taking place of a real, you know, one-on-one counseling session. We're not here. You're not here to assess anyone. You're not here to diagnose. You're not making any uh, treatments, anything of that order. Uh, we're just trying to educate ourselves a little bit. I'm hoping to educate myself and the listeners a little bit about this. Well, there are a lot of questions there, and I think I can provide some type of answer for most of them. I've seen some similar charts when we look at different professions and sort of the suicide and then also maybe divorce rates associated with that. And I've, I've seen some similar things, right, with auto techs being high there. Specifically, one of the charts I ran across indicated that it's specifically men in those professions that the suicide rates are high for, which leads us to a really important conversation about suicide and men. So kind of the current research tells us that while women are more likely to experience thoughts of suicide, men are more likely to actually kill themselves via suicide. There's a number of reasons for that. But I think a good place to start is sort of talking about the spectrum of what do we mean by thinking of suicide, right? And it's really a spectrum. And that is, you know, different professionals might have some different starting and ending points. But the way I kind of think about it is on one side, we have what we would call passive suicidal ideation, which is just kind of passing thoughts. So that could be something like, I just wish I wouldn't wake up tomorrow morning. I'm just really tired. I just wish this would end. If I was dead, it'd be easier. But it never really goes beyond that. Those would be some early warning signs for either yourself or for family members. If you're hearing that type of thing, if you're having those thoughts, that's probably a big indicator that something's going on and you could use some additional support, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, we're talking about people who have 
created a plan and then have what we'd call intent to actually act on that plan. And even that kind of has its own little spectrum of, so is it just a plan? Is there a plan and intent? Or has this person started to engage in preparatory actions, giving things away, writing letters, purchasing some type of way to kill themselves, whether that's pills or a firearm, right? Like actually starting this process. And so then the level of support someone would need Part of, you know, what dictates what level of support they would need is based on where they are in that spectrum. And then what ability do we have to kind of help them and intervene in that so that it's harder for them to actually act on those? Such a rough subject for me, not because I sympathize. It's probably the opposite. Like, and maybe it's bad to bring up, but I can't hardly empathize with just wanting to check out. It's so hard for me to wrap my head around and I feel so badly for anybody that has gotten to that point. Like just talking about, you know, how you started there with, you know, I kind of hope I don't wake up tomorrow. Like that's never even been a passing thought. I'm not implying I'm mentally healthy either. Just it's that hard to uh, empathize with that thought. And it, it kind of breaks me up inside a little bit. I think for folks who have never been there or maybe haven't even spent a lot of time with folks who have been there, it does seem just really foreign and there's just a lot of questions there. Suicide is truly a tragedy, not only for the person who would kill themselves via suicide, but also for family and friends who are frequently left with just so many questions and just such a profound sense of loss and trying to make sense of it is really hard. And it's so counter to kind of everything culturally we think of in terms of valuing life and right the hope of things getting better and really for folks when they're in that place frequently they feel like there just is no hope for that anymore and so it's really hard for them to imagine things getting better the other thing we know about suicide i think there's a little bit of a a misperception in that Everybody who commits suicide is somebody who is fundamentally sitting in this place where there is no hope and it's all this well thought out plan and intent and nothing is going to stop them. That's actually not accurate. Part of what we know is that many of the people who do attempt suicide or complete suicide, it's a bit of an impulsive act. I wasn't able to pull the exact stats on how much of it is this very well thought out planned thing versus impulsive, but there's a significant portion that are truly just very impulsive, right? It was maybe they were kind of lower on the spectrum of severity. And then one day, one night, something went really bad. And especially, you know, we have to talk about kind of access to means here, which is how readily available is something to kill yourself with. And so part of that conversation with men in particular is men tend to use firearms, so one of the stats I ran across, you know, we have a couple years delayed here, but in 2020, of all the suicides that were completed, about 70%, just under, were completed by white men. And of the suicides that were completed, over 52% of them involved a firearm. And that's followed by some type of suffocation, which is just over 27%. And so if we're thinking impulsive, a firearm is a very, frankly, surefire way to make an impulsive act stick. Yeah, very quick. Right. And so when we're talking about how do we help someone who's having these thoughts, part of that discussion is how do we prevent them from being able to do this impulsively, right? How do we make it a lot harder 
for them to do something impulsively. I mean, I don't know how much pressure you would ever put on anybody to recognize signs that this might happen. So I can kind of speak to that, actually, because I work in a rural area. I work with a lot of men. I work with, frankly, most of the people I work with own guns and I support that. And I have very blunt conversations with my clients about, you know, I I have no interest in taking your firearms away from you, but I do have an interest in keeping you safe. And so can we get creative in how we do that? And so sometimes it's like a brother hangs on to it until you feel better or a friend, right? We're not talking about getting law enforcement involved. We're, you know, we're not there necessarily. That would be a very extreme scenario. Most of the time it's it's a conversation with a dad or a brother or a buddy or someone who can just make it harder for you. And I've really found at least that people have responded well to that. And that then because there's some trust, right, when they're feeling better, they say, hey, you know, I took my guns back and I say, are you ready? And they say, yep. And I say, okay, that sounds great. But you have to have the conversation. I was kind of thinking about that. Why auto mechanics? And okay, you know, male dominated field maybe plays a you know, a certain role in that. Um, but there's a lot of male dominated fields. I don't know. I just kind of thinking about it. You know, I'm not looking to demonize anything. So I'm really just thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, uh, that some of the pressures, uh, to produce and produce. And in many cases, it's kind of a thankless job, meaning you could be very, very good at your job and making a pretty darn good living. And yet the public really doesn't think very highly of you. It's not uncommon, I think, for somebody to go into a social setting, maybe a party of some sort, get introduced and, hey, what do you do for a living? Maybe after you've been conversing for a while and you will tell somebody that you're fix cars for a living and they'll almost look at you inquisitively like, well, did you, did you struggle in school? Like you seem pretty bright. <laughs> Why? You know, not saying that that would just drive somebody, but I'm just trying to think of, it's almost like tumblers in a lock. What's contributing to it? And is it, you know, working very hard, eking out a living and, you know, things are changing now. So it'll be interesting now to watch the next few years as compensation packages for auto mechanics is improving. So I'm wondering if that's going to have an effect, like a positive effect on driving the number down. If leading up to this, maybe wasn't so much the case, depending on the ages of people that are uh, having thoughts like this, if they've been at it for a while, these are older, you know, I hate to even say age ranges, but forties, fifties, where they've been doing this for a while, they're looking around and said, I could have done something else and it's too late now. And, uh, the frustration, the disappointment, stuff like that just builds and builds. And I am totally making this up as I go. Seriously. I think you're on to something, right? So when I kind of think about this and we talk about risk factors or kind of contributing factors, we really split it up into two different groups, right? We have kind of general risk factors that just make someone more likely to experience this overall. And then we have these kind of acute risk factors, which are in the moment, right? For someone who's already maybe having some of these thoughts, what makes them more likely to act on them? So with these general risk factors, I was kind of making myself some notes today. And as I was creating my list, I was really struck by, oh, 
Yeah, a lot of this applies to techs, male-dominated fields. So one of the biggest kind of general risk factor is untreated mental health concerns. So depression, anxiety, substance use concerns. In men, these tend to be underdiagnosed and undertreated anyway. So automatically we have one. There's a little bit of research that indicates that automotive techs are maybe at a slightly increased risk for substance use concerns. So, right, there's another one. And especially when I think about another general one would be um, physical health concerns, including chronic pain. Yeah, that's a good one. Especially untreated, unmanaged chronic pain. I hear a lot about that. Shoulders, necks, backs, legs. Oh, man, that's a good one. Right. So that's actually a really big one. And then that links into the substance use thing, right? Because then guys are using, whether it's alcohol or drugs or even some of these synthetic things you can buy at some of the shops now, like Kratom is one I hear a lot about dealing with energy and pain. Okay. So we've hit a few now, right? There's some thought about techs have maybe a little more access to lethal means, even just on the job, right? Different chemicals, solvents. There's some question about what type of protective equipment are guys using? So are there TBIs that are undiagnosed or kind of brain changes related to exposure to chemicals? We just don't know that research doesn't exist, but it's a question. Yeah, I might have to go digging, but I'm almost positive that there's stuff showing how hydrocarbons specifically would be fuel vapors, uh, some of the sprays, Cleaning sprays like carburetor cleaner, which was more common years ago. Uh, some of the brake cleans that have any number of hydrocarbons. There's a lot of different ones out there, but uh, tends to attack the frontal lobe. Well, right. Yeah, right. That's the part of our brain that's involved in decision making and executive function. And we know if there's brain damage there, folks are more likely to experience suicidal thoughts and act impulsively. Right. So we've ticked off a few now. Prolonged stress, definitely that exists in the field. A really big one people I think underestimate is not only isolation and loneliness, but a sense of worthlessness or of being a burden to others, right? And I think especially as guys age and maybe start to slow down or it gets harder and harder to keep up or what have you, that really kicks in. A sense of purposelessness is a big deal, Major life transitions is another big one. So whether that's changing roles, changing jobs, experiencing a divorce. I ran across a stat today that techs experience higher levels of divorce than the general public. So, okay, that's concerning. So we get to have a follow-up episode, you and I, about uh, relationships. I'll talk about relationships all day long. (laughs) It's an interesting conversation I want to have. I would like to have one about dating and then the actual relationship. So I do a lot of that too. I would love that. Let's back burner that. Yeah. What we're really talking about is a group of folks who have multiple long-term chronic risk factors. And that's before we even get into, right, some of the research from the CDC talks about lower pay or kind of socioeconomic status feeds into this, which techs are under underpaid and that's a problem, right? low supervisory or colleague support. So guys who are working in environments where maybe they don't have the support they need, that's pretty tough. If there's a sense of like low control over their job or how well they're doing or their future at the job, that's a big deal. That's another risk factor. And then there's some more general ones too. So, and I think this is kind of a roundabout thing where 
a, a lot of our research indicates that if you know someone who has committed suicide or a family member has committed suicide, you're at an increased risk for attempting suicide. So if you're in a field where it's higher than average and you're more likely to be exposed, that just that increases your risk right there. That's very interesting. If you have a higher rate of suicide, it almost increases it. Well, right. And we've even seen some research on, right, when when high profile suicides happen, right? So there's been some in Hollywood recently. We we see rates increase then too. Or, you know, sometimes folks hear about it kind of like goes through high schools. You'll get multiple people in a group of friends attempting. It's the same concept. You know, there's six, seven, eight things right there that are very present in the field and then not talked about. So when we talk about what do you do about an issue like this? Well, if folks don't even know if it's an issue, you're doing nothing. Have you visited the Napa Auto Care member site lately? Since its relaunch in 2020, the Napa Auto Care member site has continued to evolve to keep members updated on all the Napa programs, promotions, member benefits, and business building tools to help your business thrive. Some features to the member site include never miss an update. Stay current with notifications and announcements on the homepage. View the dashboard featuring your shop's financial status. Take advantage of cost-saving member-exclusive promotions. A faster, automated 2424 peace-of-mind warranty submission process. Submit re-repair claims directly to the member site and easily check the status there as well. Typically, the claim is settled and the EFT or credit card payment is sent within 48 hours. Turn searches into new customers with the referral tracker. Learn more about how a consumer Napa online search for your shop can generate new customers at no additional cost to members. Use this popular customer tool to evolve your marketing strategies to get the most business value. Own more than one Napa Auto Care? Link all facilities to one login and access all facilities as one user. You can also access the shop, Napa, Helm, or Pro Office website directly. Submit a pro-image free look for a sneak peek at how you can co-brand your locally known name with the nationally recognized Napa brand. Submit online ASC certification renewal and test reimbursement. Exclusive access to dozens of industry-leading programs and solutions. If you are a Napa Auto Care member, visit member.napaautocare.com to access the member portal and take advantage of these many member benefits today. Not a Napa Auto Care Center? Contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store to learn more about how to join the Napa family. You know, we like to kick around the the term shop culture. That is a big factor. You know, we'd never probably be able to figure it out statistically, but listening to this and thinking about it, what you could do, little things to your shop and work environment, your shop processes that would immediately start turning those in the grand scheme of things, the percentages are pretty low that if something would happen in your shop, but uh, compared to many, many other professions, it's elevated. So what can we do to kind of turn the tide and start mitigating some of that? And then, like you say, it's certain processes which may address wear and tear on their bodies, of course, the socioeconomic, which I think, I, you know, I feel like that's kind of starting to improve on its own. The market is forcing wages and benefits up because of a lack of skilled uh, individuals. Not saying that that will eliminate enough. You know, our shop can't be that different from so many others. But I also wonder about 
and probably more in the northern states, the shop environment, meaning the last two shops I worked in, there was no natural light, zero. Okay, except in the warmer days, the garage doors would go open. But many, many, many days in the winter, there is zero natural light and you show up to work when it's kind of dark and you go home when it's dark. I could see that playing a, a role, you know, at least to a small percentage, right? It takes that small percentage and it edges them more and more to those thoughts, that activity, whatever. And even in our shop, can't, I have nothing concrete. I have nothing quantitative to say that I've noticed. But it, when we kind of redid the shop post fire, we put windows in. Previously, our shop had no windows, no natural light. Uh, so it's stuff like that I wonder to address. You know, is it putting skylights in, windows when you can, windows in the doors, you know, if it's difficult to put windows in the walls? Well, I think that's a really good point. One of the leading causes of suicide is untreated depression. It's not the only, but one of the leading and, right, depression can, not always, but can have kind of this biochemical basis. And so sometimes we talk about vitamin D, which is your sunlight link. And so that's one of the first things I'll sometimes suggest to people is, hey, if you're struggling with depression, especially if it's new for you or even if it's old, go to your doctor and have a vitamin D level checked. Most people are fine, but also even in Minnesota, it's really common for folks to be low on vitamin D and that kind of, you know, decreases mood. And how many guys really go do their their annual physical with their doctor and how many doctors look at them and think, hey, you're working in the dark all day. Like the connection probably just isn't there. Just the nature of a production service that making things easier as odd as it seems, seems to go against the grain. I don't understand if that's an old school thinking or not, but it seems to be kind of a, a thing where it's against the grain to try to make people's jobs easier, even though that would lead to higher production, better quality, and uh, thus hopefully more money for everybody, shop and individual included, that now addresses you know the socioeconomic stuff. Uh, time off, I think, to... And an urging to take your time off, you know, it's hard to tell people what to do with their time, but to urge them at least to take some of that time and do something completely outside of home and work. Go on a vacation. Right. Have something outside of work that you enjoy. And if you have things outside of work that you enjoy and you notice that, hey, those things aren't all that appealing anymore, that might be a sign that something's up right? If you're losing interest, if things just don't seem that great. But if you don't have anything you enjoy in the first place, that's a hard gauge to use. Undiagnosed, untreated mental health issues. That's something we talk about a few times, not on just this podcast, but previously on ones with substance use disorder, that that's a big, big indicator or a big, big issue where a lot of the people with a substance use disorder are coping uh, with an undiagnosed, untreated mental health issue. And so they're self- medicating. And I think that's a really good point you brought up with self-medicating, maybe a mental health issue, but chronic pain, like always in pain. And if you can get whatever meds takes the edge off, next thing you know. Right. It looks pretty appealing then. It's appealing. And then I think eventually it's to the point where you need them not to feel good, but just to feel normal. And now we have a whole different issue going on. 
Right. Then you're using it to function, to get through day to day. Right. And with this thing about untreated mental health concerns. So part of why it's untreated is because men tend not to recognize it in themselves. And then there's also some kind of knowledge out there about, especially with like depression and anxiety, in men it can look different than we would expect. And so then sometimes the people around people who are struggling also don't recognize it, right? So with depression, frequently in men, it looks like a lot of anger. And so this might be a guy who people are like, he has an anger problem. Well, he might, or it might be depression and it's not treated or anxiety can look a lot like some controlling stuff. And so then, well, he has control issues. You just want to control me. Well, maybe, or he's anxious. And right, if you think about even the way that's approached, if you know someone has depression, it's easier to be nice to them about it. But if it's conceptualized as, well, he's just angry and controlling, people aren't necessarily very nice or understanding about that. And so then again, right, then maybe there's some shame or some blame. And well, that's definitely not making depression better. Yeah. And I think shame, that's a pretty powerful word that has, I think, a lot to do with a lot of the stuff you're talking about. So men are less likely to seek any type of mental health help in the first place, whether that's therapy or even a conversation with their doctor about, say, like medications, is there's this shame thing. So I was doing some reading today about, well, why is it? Like, what are the traits that men tend to carry that they don't seek help? And so it's one of the articles I read talked about stoicism, invulnerability, and self-reliance. And if you're not those things, there's shame. Well, so then there's a lot of shame in even saying, hey, I'm not okay. Hey, I feel angry all the time. I mean, I'm a therapist, so I hear it. But out in the public setting, I don't hear guys talk like that. Almost ever. Generations and generations and generations of rub some dirt on it and get back out there. Not to go too far on a tangent here, but former Green Bay quarterback, Brett Favre is in a little bit of hot water with some stuff that we don't need to talk about, but he was very highly regarded because he was a quote unquote old school quarterback who played hurt a lot and then developed a painkiller addiction. But that was one of the things people adored about him was he was hurt badly, showed up on Sunday and played, played through the pain. I don't know if he was playing through the pain. He was playing on something to deal with the pain. And I, you know, I'm not trying to run his playing career into the ground at all, but that's something that's glorified and has been glorified for a long time. Playing hurt, playing through the pain, not feeling well, coming to work sick. That, I remember that as a big thing. You know, you were better off to show up to work sick and get sent home than you were to um, call in. COVID's changed that quite a bit where it's like, just <laughs> if you're sick, stay home. Please stay home. Well, right. And that was a good change. But even right, like physical pain. Right. If your body hurts all the time, you're going to work anyways. Right. Or you smash a hand. That doesn't feel good. But guys work through it. And not just physical. Now we're talking about mental. There's something off and not trying to send a message of you know call in, call in. But to go recognize that like I am off. It's worth talking to somebody about even like you said, a quick discussion with your physician. And I'm guessing that's where this would go. And again, I'm not giving advice. I have no, <laughs> no position to give advice on any of this. But I would think logically, 
when you realize something is off, whatever it is, physical or mental, we're focusing, I think, a little more on the mental a little bit, that your regular physician to bring it up and not saying that they're going to start tossing antidepressants at you and that they should or shouldn't, you know, but hopefully they're going to check you out physically. Like you said, checking your blood and vitals and stuff like that, that maybe they can pick up something, you know, and I, again, I, it's like, I don't want to throw it like diagnoses or anything like that, but you know, thyroid issues and sleep, like you were saying that, you know, that we're treating at low energy. Well, you know, what are you doing sitting on your phone till three in the morning playing Candy Crush or whatever that factors, it builds up. Well, and frequently our primary care doctors are the folks who catch early depression. They know that they're trained for that. You actually have to see them for that to do that. Right. But yeah, that's a really good place to start. You know, even myself, I'm a therapist with a lot of awareness of this. I went in this spring because I was waking up at 4 a.m. every morning and my doctor said, well, are you sure it's not depression? That's one of our early indicators, our changes in sleep. But again, if you aren't having conversations with your doctor, if you aren't going, say like my husband who hasn't seen his doctor in years, <laughs> you know, good example, but there's no opportunity for anyone to screen it early and catch it, right? And, and doctors, yeah, they may or may not give meds or they might say, hey, how about you talk to someone actually, you know, I can refer you to someone or here's a place we like, or that's a lot of how people get hooked into additional care. Yep. And it can lead, it wouldn't have to be meds. I think, I think a lot of times, you know, we get talking, get to talking about meds, antidepressants, you know, SSRIs, stuff like that all the time. And it might be just being able to go talk to somebody and they're kind of outside your circle and they, they care about you. They're looking out for you, but they're on the outside and, you know, just kind of getting it a chance to get it out of you that way and learning some coping skills. Cause you know, again, I think for me, it starts fracturing into all kinds of different possibilities and probabilities, but that you end up one of those issues, maybe coping mechanisms. And if you learn some new ones, it might change your life completely and for the better. Right. So one of the things we know about kind of depression and suicide, sometimes we talk about protective factors. So what are the things that are going to keep somebody from acting on these type of thoughts? And so one of them is, do you have some type of provider you're connected to? Are you in therapy? Are you talking to someone? You know, I know people have maybe some strong feelings about meds, and I think there's a lot of fear and concerns there, but it's this extra set of eyes to kind of keep an eye on things, right? We're trained to do this. We can tell you how worried we are or not. And I'll have really honest, blunt conversations about folks about, okay, so this is what I'm seeing. This isn't inherently uncommon. I'm not afraid yet, but here's where I would be concerned. Or if this, this, or this happens, I need you to tell me because that puts us in a different ballpark, right? We have to have different conversations then. Because a lot of times folks just don't know. And if you don't know, you're not doing anything. So we've talked about some of the environmental things and maybe shop environment, culture, uh, maybe some of the stuff as a individual to keep, you know, at least in the back of your mind, right? I, I don't want anyone obsessing over this, but you know, just some stuff to keep in the back of your mind to be aware of, you know, uh, awareness doesn't hurt. How about a colleague, a coworker, a friend that you recognize behaviors that are maybe concerning or they outright come to you with concerns that, you know, they're having these thoughts, you know, what would you be your recommendation of um, 
how to handle that, how to be, how to be a good friend uh, or a, a good colleague, do the right thing. You know, let's probably keep the Superman cape in the closet. Yeah. So the first thing is just be aware of your coworkers and your colleagues, right? So the first thing is kind of this question of acute risk factors. So we have these kind of chronic, more general ones, and then we have acute ones that would be a lot more concerning. Those would be if somebody directly says, hey, you know, I've, I've just, I'm having a tough time getting up in the morning. I don't want to come to work. Life feels really pointless or worthless. Um, sometimes there's indirect comments. So, well, you know, I'm not going to be here for long, so I don't have to worry about that or eh, soon it'll be fine. Where you're kind of like, mm, what do you mean by that? So ask really directly, what does that mean? If you see someone withdrawing or isolating or really going through some mood changes that seem weird, ask, what's going on with you? I'm worried about you. Hey, what's up? Some more severe ones would be if, if you feel like someone's saying goodbye, sending goodbye text messages, right? Giving stuff away. Like, I don't know if they borrowed a tool eight months ago and suddenly it shows up and you're like, hmm, that's strange. Why now? Right? That gut instinct that sometimes where we look at someone and think, ooh, something's up with them. Ask. Increasing substance use would be another big one. Well, hey, I've you know, we used to drink socially and now you're getting kind of blasted every night. That's a concern. And I think a lot of times what happens when we talk about asking is people get really worried about, well, I'm going to offend someone if I ask. And my response is, if that person is thinking about killing themselves, who cares? They can be offended. Because actually what most of our research tells us is if, if we ask directly, more likely than not, people are actually going to tell us the truth. A, because people just don't lie to that question very often, not never, but, you know, usually they're honest. And B, asking it directly communicates that you're willing to have the discussion. And when I say ask directly, I mean very directly, right? So one of the things we'll train bystanders for is to literally say the words, are you thinking of killing yourself? Not are you thinking of suicide? Not are you thinking of harming yourself? Are you thinking of killing yourself? And then we're all smart. We're all with it. We know that not really? Well, that's not a no. So what does not really mean? And if someone says yes, okay, well, that is your sign, right? <laughs> that something needs to happen there. And so if, if that's the answer you get, kind of the next thing we tend to recommend is, okay, so stay with that person. I'm a clinician. I know what to do there, but nobody else out in the public is going to know like, oh my gosh, how do I assess this? How do I figure out if you're safe to go home? that's a really good time to refer to a professional then. So that could be having someone go to the emergency department and be evaluated. Most emergency departments, at least in this state at this point, have some type of access to a mental health person who can do a thorough evaluation and either get that person hooked into services or make recommendations, right? Going to the ER doesn't mean you're going to stay there and be hospitalized. Most people aren't. Actually, most people are discharged. And that's where we get into this question of removing access, right? So if you ask someone, are you thinking of killing yourself? And they say, yes, it would be reasonable to say, okay, how are you thinking of doing that? And if they say, oh, well, I haven't thought about it. Okay, great. You haven't got that far. But if they say, well, I've been thinking about overdosing. Okay, overdosing on what? Well, you know, some people will say heroin. Okay, do you have heroin? No. Great. Do you know where to get any? No. 
even better, right? We're multiple steps removed now. But if it's, well, I'd overdose on my painkillers. Do you have painkillers? Yes. Oh, we're a lot more worried about that, right? Because you could do that. So then there can be a question about, well, can I hang on to those for you? Could your mom, could your wife, could your, you know, whoever. It's the same thing I mentioned earlier with firearms of, okay, so can somebody else hang on to it? Not taking it away forever. Not that you're never going to get it back, but let's make sure that you can't act impulsively and, and make a mistake that no one can reverse now. So the removing access is, that's actually the number one thing, right? Outside of a- asking directly, the number one thing is remove access, make it harder. I think sometimes there's kind of this idea of, well, if someone wants to kill themselves, they're going to do it some way, no matter what. That's not actually true. Most people who develop a plan develop their plan for a specific reason, whether that would be painless or that's what I have access to or I want to be sure I can't mess up. The vast majority of people who have a plan can explain why they chose that plan. And then frequently what I hear is, well, I wouldn't do it any other way. Great. So if I can address this, we're in good shape. Right. Because if they're looking for the hoping that it will be very painless, they're not going to opt for another way that they're going to suffer or feel the fading away. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, and I think the other thing we sometimes underestimate is when people are creating a plan, they'll research it. So one of the questions I've learned to ask, especially with kind of technology being what it is now is, so tell me, have you Googled ways to kill yourself? Have you Googled how many pills it would take? Because you can find out. Thankfully, Google has safeguards built in now where if you're Googling that, it'll pop up and offer you the National Suicide Crisis or Prevention Line number. But that's a solid question. Or, right, if you're kind of having this conversation with someone, you could say, well, do you want to come stay with me? My house is safe. You're welcome to stay. Can we get you back on your feet? That would be reasonable. Can I get you hooked in to a therapist? Can I help you find one? Would you be willing to talk to your doctor? refer to some type of care provider. When we talk about kind of the crisis lines or the national suicide prevention line, you don't have to be the person in crisis who calls them, right? If you're worried about a family member or friend, you can call them. You can ask questions. That's nice to know. The uh, national suicide hotline or prevention lifeline, I believe is 988. Yep. So 988, you can call or text it. There is a crisis text line too. It's 741741. And then at least in Minnesota, most counties have, or at least some counties have their own private crisis line. So if you Google your county and crisis line, some counties, especially like the bigger metro counties, they have full crisis teams. They'll come to your house. There are resources out there. Otherwise, um, NAMI Minnesota has a suicide prevention page that lists all sorts of options and really good information. So the info is out there. I mean, a Google search, suicide prevention, you'll get all sorts of stuff. Ask directly, ask if they have a plan and ask if they have intent. Are you planning on doing this? Do you have intention to act on this? Is this a thing you wanna do? When we have this discussion and people get afraid of kind of, right, someone's going to get mad at them or angry with them. If you have someone in front of you who's saying, yes, I've been thinking about it. Yes, I have a plan. And yes, I intend to act on it. You need to call 911. That is far beyond what you can address at that point. And that person might be mad in the moment, but once they're better, they probably won't be. Yeah. And they can be mad at you and alive. 
Right. They can be mad at you alive and we'll all be grateful for it. Yeah. I'm kind of okay with that. Again, not something I've dealt with personally. I was just kind of thinking as a, almost as a reference and you might be able to just shoot this all to heck and deservedly so, but there is a Netflix series. I think they actually changed it up a little bit to make it less brutal, which may have been a mistake, but that's not the point called 13 reasons why. And it's aimed at adolescence. But I think some of it translates quite well, I think. The idea is that the main protagonist at the end is going to commit suicide and yet on that path there. So leading up to it, it's a path of just horrible things happen to her, right? It's almost working to justify her desire to do this. But along the way, there's things people did right and things people could have done better. And they're professionals. But also the victim or, or the, the pr- protagonist in the show, the main character, when help was offered, she rejected it. And I guess it's easy to say in both ways, if somebody's reaching out for help, it's a good time to try to help them like right now, drop everything, especially when we're talking about something as serious as this. On the flip side, again, I'm sure way easier said than done. But when someone's offering their hand to help, That's a darn good time to grab it. I hope people do that. Both sides. Another thing that pops in my head uh, was a a line from the movie World's Greatest Dad with Robin Williams saying, talking about how suicide uh, is a very, very permanent solution for a temporary problem. We're not talking about something that people tend to do logically. I'm not calling them illogical, just that it's not something that's generally approached logically. Like you said, a lot of it's kind of almost on a whim, a split decision that if you can step back just for a second and go, okay, this is a very, very permanent solution to a probably going to want to be a very temporary problem. And then I suppose some people will say like the hypocrisy involved with Robin seeing that in a movie and then what he did. I think we got to be very, very brutally honest here. What he did might have been the last act of consciousness because of uh, Louis body syndrome. So, you know, there's other things going on that uh, his life could have been pretty horrific. And I'm not defending what he did, but kind of got to call a spade a spade here. He wasn't really being a hypocrite. He's avoiding something that you know, it would have been pretty terrible when you can't trust your brain. So when we look at suicide risk factors, the diagnosis of a chronic or life-threatening illness is one of the big ones, right? If that occurred recently, we know that's high. And there is, right? There is a whole other discussion around kind of assisted suicide and right to die that is its own thing, right? And families have a lot of big feelings about that. And it's a warranted discussion, but that's also a bit different than untreated depression, untreated anxiety, And right with this idea of kind of protective factors of if someone can recognize that, okay, yes, I'm having these thoughts, but I don't want to act on them, or I know that that would hurt my family or my friends, or I know this is just kind of the part of life I'm at and it's going to get better. To me, those are really good signs, right? If I'm talking to someone in my office and they're saying that to me, I'm like, okay, I'm pretty comfortable with this, right? Clearly this person is suffering but I'm not immediately afraid that this is a thing they're going to act on. Clearly they need help and we're going to do that, right? It's not as sort of anxiety producing as if I'm sitting in front of someone who says, you know, my wife and kids would be better off without me. Well, that's really concerning because I'd bet money they disagree with that. 
especially right if if I'm sitting with someone and I say, you know, I'm actually, you know, say I know your wife and I know she disagrees with that. No, no, she'd find someone else. The kids could get a new dad. And this isn't designed to kind of be judging of them, but there is a disconnection happening there, right? If someone can no longer connect that the people around them wouldn't share the feeling that this is a good thing, that's really scary. Or I'm just a burden to them. Oh, that's really scary too. If someone is having thoughts, but say, you know, he says, no, I could never do that because I'm afraid of dying. Awesome. Good. That's a protective factor. Or let's say my religious beliefs say I can't do that. Great. That's a protective factor. Or, well, yes, I wish I could, I, maybe even I wish I could do this, but I know my kids need me. Awesome. Yes, they do. All of those are good protective factors. But when those are gone, we're really worried, right? So that's part of, say, like, why a divorce and a custody battle with someone who's having depression and then that's gone, let's say, that could be a scary moment. It doesn't have to be, but it could be. It's a complicated thing. And I think this ties back into kind of the beginning about shop culture of, do you know your coworkers? Do you know your friends? Do you know what's going on in their life? And can you pick up when things are happening that could be tough and could be worrisome? It doesn't mean they are, but it might be a good sign to check in with someone then and find out. I think especially if you're in a, you're in a managerial type of a, of a position, that's kind of part of the game is to look out and think about stuff like that. What, what am I creating for, I guess I keep beating the words to death, but those are the words we got. What kind of a culture do I got going on? What kind of an environment? What do I want for a culture? What do I think I have? And then what do I want? And uh, putting things into motion that will get you uh, to where you want to go or just trying to step back and look objectively and say like, you know, there are a couple of factors here that don't need to be here that we could change and it would be for the better anyways. If you have someone who, let's say, is going through a divorce and has been, I don't know, having a hard time getting to work on time and let's say their performance or production has really gone down and, and they're wanting to, you know, take an hour off a week and they're kind of like, well, I don't want to tell you why. Maybe they're getting help and maybe you should just let them have the hour. You could even offer like, you know, hey, if, if you decide you're going to like seek therapy or you need to go to a doctor, we're going to support you with your time off. That's a pretty easy one. Like I get it puts a strain on people, but especially in the time of telehealth, you could sit in the car for an hour and that's it. Most definitely. I would just like to really thank you once again for taking the time to sit down and talk to me and just, I learned a lot. I learned an awful lot tonight. I really do appreciate that. I'm glad. Thank you for having me. I, this is a thing I'm kind of passionate about and I'm glad to get to sit and talk about it. You know, you, you don't have these conversations over Thanksgiving dinner. I would. <laughs> well, right. I'm a therapist. I would too, but people get uncomfortable around me. So we don't. Turns out there isn't a lot I won't want to talk about. So, <laughs> or learn about. Thank you everyone for listening. Please, uh, this might be one of those that are worth sharing around. If you know somebody that uh, may be struggling, give them a link to uh, listen, uh, hit the like button. Uh, if you have any ideas or thoughts about the podcast, I'm really easy to reach via social media uh, or you can email Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you again, Margaret. And until next time. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. 
He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.